I was harassed at work. I want to be your man of mystery. <laughs> I think it should be the Andy and Andrew show. You guys both have radio voices. Andy and Andrew show. We just came made that way. <laughs> the voice factory. Just have to have the content now behind the voice. Hey, everyone. I'm Andy DeRossi, founder of the Detroit Bus Company. I've always wondered about the people who own the places I frequent around Detroit. Like, who is responsible for the sandwich I'm eating? Where the money goes and why? I'm interested in business owners that have been here for decades, along with those who are just starting up. I figured you might have some of the same questions, so we started a podcast. This is Behind the Counter, where we talk to Detroit business owners and get to know the people behind the places that we love and what makes them tick. In this episode, we sit down with James Kaderiu and Andrew Hansen, two of the people behind Great Lakes Coffee in Midtown. They've been open for about four years, and odds are that, like me, you've enjoyed a beverage there one time or another. To kick things off, I asked Andrew and James to come into our studio in Corktown for a chat. So, first off, I can't possibly fathom doing this without booze, and you guys have brought what I imagine is some amazing booze. So, um, seeing as you run the uh, Institute for Advanced Drinking, is yes. That, yeah. uh, yes. what do we got? So, the whole idea behind the Institute for Advanced Drinking is not that you have to be at some level of drinking, but kind of advancing the agenda of knowing the people that create the stuff that mm-hmm. we're serving to people. So, we have a lot of direct relationships with the winemakers, beer makers, uh, coffee farms, and things like that. Hmm. So although we didn't bring coffee with us, we brought sort of a representative sampling of something we kind of specialize in, which I call the Sour Hour of Power. Uh, And it's sort of the intersection of acidity um, where wine meets beer meets cider. So we've got a Slovenian skin contact white, which has got some great acidity, uh, almost drinks like a red, kind of a special uh, way of making wine that's very old-fashioned. We've got Lilanau Brewing Company, Good Harbor Golden, which is a wild yeast uh, fermented uh, beer made in Dexter uh, from a buddy of mine, Charles Pasenka, uh, and that is a fantastic uh, beer. Uh, and then we have, uh, there's a new project called Virtue Cider, uh, which is in southwest Michigan, and he's making his own version of a super funky Basque cider um, with Spanish, Spanish-style cider uh, from the Basque region of Spain with Michigan apples. And then we have one from the other side, actually, from the Pays Basque, which is the French Basque region uh, that we're also serving. So they all have, like, really high acidity. They're crisp. They're fun to drink. Mm-hmm. They don't weigh you down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're a little uh, funky, which we like. I love yeah. it. Keep it funky. Well, and that's a nice thing, too, about doing things the way we do. Um, a lot of people say, I don't like this. I don't like sour beers. I don't like that. Um, but we're able to kind of try and take people along the path. Um, and we're doing wine tastings every week, and we're going to try and start doing some beer tastings and stuff like this too where someone can say, well, I don't like this, but I like this, but you can kind of help build that bridge and get them there. And so, so let me back up a bit. So you're, I mean, you're taking what are like world-class products, right? Like let's just, let's just say these are probably the top of what they are. You've, you've gone out and you've found these things. Right. Um, and you're doing this in a city that isn't known for its finding artisanal awesomeness and any kind of thing. I mean, you're, you're in a city where – you could argue that this wouldn't be properly appreciated. I mean, is this is is this the first foray into that for Detroit? I mean, is this uh, what what other organizations are doing stuff like this besides you guys, like in the city proper? You know, I feel like we were all sort of growing up. My background is like sort of partially ethnic, partially Detroit, which I think is a lot of uh, the story of people that have uh, come and gone from this area. So I've always had an appreciation for doing things the old-fashioned way, mm-hmm. you know, caring about the products, doing a lot of stuff yourself. And I feel like there's been a food and beverage culture that we've been building here for several years where something like this 
uh, is becoming more the norm than it was sort of the strange thing a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But I think in order to lead, you have to set something out there, and then you have to sort of hand sell or teach people about this, expose them to different flavors, to different styles of doing things. Sure. And I think a lot of people, you know, who are personal friends of mine, you know, mm -hmm. um, I feel like we're setting a new standard for Detroit, uh, where sometimes it's just more interesting to drink here than even in Chicago or New York City or San Francisco. We have a different spirit here, uh, and I think putting things out there has been, like, one of the reasons I've been very happy to do this. Well, and you were part of Gourmet Underground Detroit, right? So I mean, yes. that was that was kind of the uh, I don't want to say the first. I mean, we we've been sampling uh, good foods and, and boozes here for quite a long time. I mean, we were the Paris of the West, right? Right. I imagine good wine has been here before. Uh, but as somebody who's who's working to open up an institute for advanced drinking, uh, it seems like they wouldn't have chosen Detroit off a map of all the big fancy cities in the past. There just weren't that many places opening. There's kind of a dive bar ethic in a lot of the city, which is fine, mm -hmm. but I think it's already catered to. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just sort of grew up that way where we wanted to have, like, a different standard. We wanted to go out and spend money. We wanted to influence owners. But what's happened is we've influenced them by opening our own places and kind of sh almost showing them how to do it. Sure. Well, and I think the key is in when James says, I like exposing people to new things. Um he just really likes exposing himself to people in whatever way he can. I think that's the <laughs> right. The business was an added benefit to that. I didn't realize you could do that. Yeah. So yeah. you guys are uh, you're you're both Detroiters. You live in the city. Yes. I I'm, I'm a transplant. Yeah, oh, where was, are you from? I was lured by the by the my wife. The old recruitment um, policy. Nice I'm, I'm from by the woman the the, the woman the that my I wife. love the <laughs> my wife. She's from here. I'm from Washington State originally. So I moved out here about. Almost two years ago. Were you dragged uh, back to Michigan kicking and screaming? Was it like, uh, fine if I have to? No, I mean you know, we had both lived quite a few places. Um, I'd lived in Australia for a few years. She lived in Oregon. She lived in Thailand for a while. And so we kind of just saw this as a, an opportunity to, for me to get to know her family and all mm -hmm. that. But it was just like, we're like, you know, not a negative way, but Detroit kind of felt a little bit like the Wild West kind of, you know, like sure. you come out and there's a lot of opportunity. Actually, she took me into Great Lakes Coffee she goes, this will be our hangout. you got to try their coffee. you got to check this place out. And I walked out with a job. And, and then yeah. you're a native Detroiter, James. Yes. You, you were born and raised here. Grew up in the city. Yeah, I lived in Detroit until the late 80s, okay. the end of my high school tenure, uh, and then spent some time in the Burbs and then moved back. Okay. And, I mean, you, you travel a lot. I mean, yes. you, you're all over the world. Uh, that's obviously a huge part of, of who you are. Right. Uh, what what keeps you coming back to the city? What prevents you from just getting off the plane somewhere and staying there? It's very interesting because my brother is a guy that went and sought opportunity elsewhere, although he's very passionate about Detroit as well. He's lived in China for uh, the last five or so years. My family's always traveled a lot, and we do have relatives still in Serbia and Romania, so it's kind of grown up mm -hmm. traveling. Sometimes we would travel more outside the state than going up north, as uh, most Michiganders are wont to do. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love it up there. Sure. Um, but I've always felt a keen sense of connection to the city itself and, like, the immigrant experience of my grandparents. Uh, and it's something I think about quite a bit. There's something that really attracts me uh, to this city in particular, and I've never wanted really to live elsewhere. And I do travel quite a bit. I love to see um, just how other people do things, and I love to taste food and hike and boat and swim and do all of those things. But there's something in my soul, I think, that just connects with the city of Detroit and the spirit of the people here. Um, it's just always been home for me. Well, I think that uh, one of the things that really intrigued me was uh, in, in your, <laughs> of course, while we were stalking you on the Internet, um, <laughs> you, you like to uh, import and work with uh, organic black peppercorns. Yes. 
Tell me a little more about that. My brother was working in India, and I went to India and bought some coffee, and I bought from a uh, coffee farm where the woman was also growing peppercorns, vanilla bean, uh, cardamom, coriander, cinnamon bark, all these things. And, and then just Yeah, of course, there are goats <laughs> everywhere. Um, and it was just fascinating to me, like, how fresh they were to see how they grew. Because, I mean, spices have always been sort of a currency and very exotic from faraway places and right. things like that, sure. although we can use them here, you know. Um, and it was just so interesting to see, like, does one thing influence another? Does that influence the flavor of the coffee, the fact that vanilla pods are sprouting, you know, two feet away? So it's always – I've always been very experimental when it comes to food or exploratory, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we've been uh, importing uh, some spices from coffee farms from around the globe. I appreciate that you're making food and drink really accessible to people and then helping them appreciate finer things uh, or just, just better things. Um, but how do you develop your palate? Like how do you go from, you know, from born in Detroit to uh, food and drink expert? I mean what, what drove you to that? Well, I always tell people you want to drink as much as you can. So uh, I think I grew up drinking from my uncle's beer cup at uh, Olympia Stadium watching the Red Wings. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've always been a bit of a tippler. But I think the, really, the way you develop your palate. <laughs> as much as you can. Yeah, for sure. Uh, is to drink a lot, drink a lot of different things, drink with different groups of people. It's really a practiced thing, mm -hmm. and it reminds me, to make a sports analogy, I guess, a, a lot of people think that you, there are just certain people that have these like supreme athletic ability, and that is true, but most people have to work at it. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, in the same vein, people think that there are super tasters, and I'm sure there are, but you really have to work a lot at it. And so with uh, the practice of cupping for coffee, it's just a very repetitive thing. Mm -hmm. You don't get it just in two seconds, but you do it over and over and over again, and then you taste with the same people, so you develop a common palate. So when you're talking about things, because we have to judge coffee objectively, which is typically taste as a subjective thing, you have to be able to understand what somebody is saying. I taste cherry, or this is 86 points, or this or that. And so really just over time, I think another thing that is really helpful to developing a palate is just taking hikes in the woods, cooking a lot, going to produce stores. I remember I grew up on the east side, all the Italian guys going in and sticking their nose as close to the cheese as possible and into the produce and touching and smelling and looking. And I think just being in touch with the natural world really is the best way to develop a palate. No touching. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you know, you're talking a lot about, you know, when you were on the farm looking at the way that, the, you know, the coffee grows next to the spices. And we've got a lot of, like, agriculture, you know, happening in Detroit. People talk about it all the time. And there's a lot of really good, you know, CSAs and farms that are happening. Do you see, are you seeing any of that sort of exploration of, like, you know, newer things or, you know, plant? I, I, I'm not a horticulturist. I'm not a gardener. But, you know, just from hearing you talk about the, the, what the effects it has growing things, you know, side by side and, you know, how that affects the, you know, if it's pollination or whatever. Are, are we seeing, you know, uh, much of that sort of gardening experimentation and playing with, you know, crops and what's next to each other in Detroit? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a big issue. So for me, as someone that's buying uh, food and wine, the soil is incredibly important. So I took a trip to France and we were in the Loire Valley a couple months ago and, uh, just seeing the farmers like work backwards from the final product, the final product being wine, back to the health of the grapes, and then you know the the ultimate thing is like man's connection in, in a general sense, man and woman, uh, to the earth and how important that is, and that's mm -hmm. something that's driven me as someone that purchases and then sells products. Detroit is a very interesting area because it was very industrial, but before that it was very agricultural. And sadly, a lot of the great agricultural land has been turned over to suburban development, mm -hmm. which I think is sort of a crime 
um, in this area in particular. It's very interesting, though, that how food has risen up as sort of a um, like a food security thing on, on one hand and then just sort of an exploratory thing on the other hand. I think there could be a lot of potential with all the open land, but I think there's an issue with, you know, testing the soil, which I think is critical um, just because of what's gone on before. But there, you know, every place really is unique. And the thing that's interesting about Europe um, in particular, where I think they've worked it out by and large, and then Central and South America uh, coffee areas where they are working these things out is understanding what kind of soil you have mm -hmm. and how things work within that environment. Um, and so I think uh, that would definitely be something that would be, um, and I'm not sure if anyone's working on this, definitely worth understanding more is what kind of soils do we have around here and what works and what doesn't work. I mean, it's, Michigan has always been a place where a lot of diversity of crops have grown, um, and I think it gets overlooked by and large. Occasionally someone will quote that we're the second most diverse after California or what have you, but to me that's really a growth industry, and that's something that we have in spades, uh, water and then just growing I think produce and more and more of these little markets. I'm mm -hmm. very much connected, you know, like I was saying, to the city of Detroit and the fact that my Serbian Romanian grandmother would bring my dad down to the Easter market every week when he was a kid. There are still farmers from Serbia that sell pork down there and I buy from them. They knew my family. My dad brought me and my brother down. Sure. That's an absolute treasure uh, across the country, but in, in Detroit in particular. So I think the more we can build off that, and I think the Easter market's doing a really good job. Um, this could be an area of just spectacular interest, I think, as a model for the entire country. It feels like a, a budding start. You know, the urban farms are, are producing some things. They're not really producing, I feel, on a huge quantity, like we're not able right. to feed the city yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then even further, getting down to, like, the, the, the individual flavors and the, and the stuff present in there, I feel like we're just getting to a point of uh, uh, the market being sustainable for that here. Sure. Um, and that feels the same way with a lot of things. I mean, I hope you agree this, the same things with a lot of Detroit, that it's uh, – um, uh, we're we're establishing what is this sort of core foundation, and I feel that what you guys do at, at Great Lakes, uh, without you know blowing sunshine up your butts, uh, is, is establishing that core foundation. <laughs> do it. I'll, I'll blow away. Uh, is establishing that core foundation of uh, of this sort of like sensitivity to taste and such, you know, right. um, and also uh, being open after five o'clock so I can get a cup of coffee. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is I used to think the only place you could do that was in San Francisco. I love San, my brother sort of lives in uh, Palo Alto now, but he was in San Francisco for a minute after China. Um, and what I love about San Francisco is just the general passion of people for coffee. And that's kind of what we're trying to build now. I think sometimes we come off as being pretentious because we have high standards, mm -hmm. but we don't mean to be that. We are trying to really tell the story of these farmers, and it's a little different model than I think people are accustomed to, but I think eventually they'll get it. And, you know, we strive to do that through really good service and, and obviously our trips to source and things like that. But it's really, I mean, it, for me personally, one of the reasons I wanted to open this place and buy a liquor license was I wanted a place to go. I mean, that's essentially my business model is I wanted a place that I wanted to hang out at. Sure. So having coffee at yeah. night were, was just such a strange thing. I mean, even in the suburbs, it's hard to find. But in Detroit, it was impossible. Right. For me, coming from the Northwest, I, I, I don't think I've quite, I think I've kind of like had to like back my brain out to learn really what's going on. Because um, for me, coming from the Northwest, like I went to college in the mid-late 90s in Portland, and it's like you could go find like amazing coffee houses and really cool, interesting stuff. And and that was kind of something that was a little more normal for me. And then like living in Australia as well, like the coffee culture is very elevated in Australia. And so I came to Detroit and like instantly went to Great Lakes Coffee, walked out with a job, started working there, and that was like my whole frame of reference for so long. <laughs> yeah. So I, wa I would walk in and it would be like, this place is beautiful, this is so cool, this is like, it felt very normal to me, and 
And uh, people would have to start saying to me, like, do you realize, like, this is not normal for this area? This is not normal for, like, this corner. And then as I learn more and more about the area and, like, I learn more about James as I got to know James and hear his vision for what that place became. And it, we're still kind of trying to figure out all that because we're still pretty young. And the more I've – the longer I've been there, the more I realized we are – and not in an arrogant way, but just – just so happens to be the way things are the way they are right now is we're kind of trying to educate a clientele and educate a group of people on what we have. And if it was in Chicago, if it was in Portland or Seattle or San Francisco or a lot of other places, we'd probably just kind of fit and blend right in with a lot of what was already going on. Sure. And um, that's what we might so- actually get pigeonholed in places like that. Right. I feel like there's a lot of creative freedom in Detroit. And that's kind of what yeah. inspires me is you, mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want here, really. Right. I live kind of like a European. I live like my grandparents lived. There's just room to do that in Detroit. And there tends to be a lot of support from people. Sure. When yeah. you're doing things that are a little, you know, in another city might either be poo pooed or pigeonholed as this or that. Yeah. You or you just would you need tons of money great. to do it. You know, yeah, you'd need capital. like. Or you'd need to know somebody or you need this or that favor and like – So, I mean, you've, you've been here a few years. What have you learned from running a business in the city? You know, stock up on toilet paper. People love the toilet but paper. Don't stack, <laughs> but don't stack it like David did because they will steal it also. Uh-oh. Yeah, stock it. Keep your toilet paper locked up. Now, um, for me, I guess my role is a lot more people-oriented and – and the vibe, I guess you might say. So I feel like you never know what's going to walk in the door. You never know what's going to come. You never know what opportunity is going to arise. You, like, Michael Bolton was <laughs> Michael Bolton walked in the cafe the other day. I was I was sitting on the bench talking to one of my beer reps, ordering some beer, and I and it was kind of like right now how the lights behind you, and I couldn't quite see what was happening, and uh-huh. I'm like. Hold on a second. Is that Michael Bolton? I was like, that guy looks just like Michael Bolton. And so I walk over and it's like, you know, 10 minutes earlier, I could have maybe kicked someone out for like, you know, stealing something. And then like all of a sudden it's just, oh, Michael Bolton's in town. No, he's Michael Bolton. And so it's kind of neat. It's very interesting to see Detroit sort of evolve as a brand, too. Because when I'm traveling, like I'm, I think I feel like I'm the ultimate marketer for Detroit. I'm telling people about Detroit all the time. And a lot of people have connection with the city uh, having come through here at one point or another. But it's really an exciting time, and I think there's just so many people that are interested in doing stuff. I I went to France, and I talked to people from New York City that want to open a wine bar here, and, you know, there's people from all over that are just finding a real interest here. I would say, you know, as a business owner, uh, sometimes it's just best to keep things simple. The You know, the rule of economics still reigns in Detroit. So I think sometimes people feel like we got free rent or something like this. But we're <laughs> on Woodward. That's a big street. I have landlords. It's, you know, yeah. they redid the whole block. Uh, some of the nicest people I ever met, two African-American guys. They own floods, among other things. Um, they have the same vision as I do. I wish people would talk about that a little bit more instead of talking about how, you know, this group or that group is being favored or disfavored by people's actions. Um, it's been nice to be a part of something like that. So I would say, you know, from my perspective, it's better to be part of something big. And that has something to do also with, with, uh, landlords that have foresight. Sure. Uh, and I think there are a lot of douchebag landlords in the city and that's prevented us from doing a lot of things. These guys have been fantastic. So I would say, you know, it's like anything else. Like the human condition requires us to deal with other people because we can always make something larger than something that we could do by ourselves. And that would, uh, I think, be applicable not only to the space but also asking advice uh, of people that have dealt with the city, like uh, administratively, like getting permits and mm-hmm. things like that. Don't do it yourself. Get some advice from someone. It's a very complicated process. But then just talk to people about different things. I think it's always important to be passionate about what you're doing. 
But sometimes you just require services. Like one, to me, one of the smartest businesses in the city isn't like a flashy restaurant or our place or something like that. It's K nine to five. Right. That's a service that so many people need. Um, and I think we need more stuff like that that caters to people that are down here already. Right. So it doesn't have to be the home run right out of the bat, but it could just be a good service. Yeah, they're not they're not as sexy, and it's a, a much less uh, a competitive space, right. uh, and so you have a lot better chance at success. Yeah. Um, w- when I have uh, kids approach me and say, "What kind of business should I start?" Uh, my answer to them is usually uh, start like a porta potty rental company, urban goat uh, farming, or urban goat farm. That that's actually on the rise Windshield right now. That's trending. Yeah. yeah. Windshield repair. Yeah. Boring things, <laughs> unsexy things, because you'll have less people in that space. You know. Yeah. Coffee shop is a hard one. I mean, yeah, coffee no, shop I, is yeah. one of the toughest. You yeah. know. Uh, and you're in a well, neighborhood we've that's... Seen, we've seen a lot of them close, too. I yeah, mean, it's, right? it's weird because Midtown is fairly dense, and there's a lot of different things going on demographically, <laughs> and it's like a great place for a coffee shop. But even we would get attractional people because there were so few things in the city. But as times change, you know, places open here and they open sure. there. And that's the way it should be. You know, sometimes we take crap for, you know, selling $4 cups of coffee when there are poor people. But it's like I grew up on the east side. I never drove to Midtown for a cup of coffee. Right. We need services in neighborhoods. You know, we need de- more density. We need more people. But I feel like everything is tied in at the end of the day to transportation, mm-hmm. which has been the source of a lot of success for this area. But it's also been the source for a lot of racism and exclusion and mm-hmm. lack of economic opportunities for all sorts of people. Sure. Well, we're building new choo-choo down three miles of Woodward. So there you I go. Mean, it'll be all fixed then, I think, right? I mean, Absolutely. The whole thing. The right? old bacon strip. Oh, yeah. The whole <laughs> landing strip. <laughs> Uh, not to be a bummer on the M1. It's gonna be it's gonna be sweet, but it'll uh, help. Yeah, but it's not the solution of the whole picture. You know, no, there's, there's a lot. Yeah. More no, there, there, Uber. Yeah, if if everyone Uber's the solution. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's exciting about it too is that I mean, there's at least some really serious investment, albeit yes. a short right. distance. Right. Hopefully, we can see it expand as the RTA, the Regional Transit Authority, starts yep. to oh, absolutely, you know, starts not... to take hold and actually get some teeth behind it. You know, yeah, yeah I don't think we're opposed. We're, we're definitely not opposed to it. We think it's a positive uh, first step uh, for development, but it's such a large problem for the area in general. When, when I think of Detroit, I think of Detroit and Southeast Michigan, and it really needs to work together for it to make sense for all of us. Because otherwise, all you have is. You have suburban development, which is fine, right. but you don't discover anything by driving to a big box store and then getting back in your car and driving away, right. where if you're walking down the street on our block alone, you've got a school of architecture from U of M, you've got the symphony, you've got a restaurant called The Grill, you've got our place, you know, a block from there is Union Street. You know, you find small services and you can specialize when you have density like that. So let's, uh, let's, let's speak from a hypothetical here. Let's say uh, I, I live in the city. I know what coffee tastes like. I know what wine tastes like. I can I can differentiate those two, and that's about it. Right. I don't. Good luck. I feel in, I feel intimidated walking into a, a place and and just picking something off the wall. I usually just say, "Give me something." Uh, how do I get better at this? How do I get better at this going to your place? I okay. Mean, how can I, I, I do that? I feel like with what we're doing and trying to understand where things come from and who grows them, and then working that all the way through. Everything in our business is based on relationships, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what you really have to do is have a level, uh, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm sensitive to economies of scale and price and considerations like that in the, the chain of trade, um, but unless you trust the person that you're going in to visit, it's always going to be something that's based on how much does this cost, mm-hmm. and so what we're trying to do is create that relationship all the way through so that when someone comes into our cafe... Even if it's busy, they can talk to one of our baristas about coffee or they can talk to me about coffee. They could come to the wine tastings on Thursday night right. and learn more about it. They could talk to Andrew about beer. 
Um, when I would go into a wine shop, if I didn't trust that person, then it was very difficult and it was a little bit intimidating. Sure. Because uh, you see prices, or they might have shelf talkers saying this is 91 points or 90 points or who knows what. But I think we really need to get back to that old-fashioned way of doing things, which is another thing that I loved growing up in the city, which is you go into the custard place and you talk to the old Italian guy there and you trust him and he recommends this or recommends that. We should approach things in the same way, but I think we've been conditioned by franchises uh, and big box stores to just walk in and, and look at a case stack of wine, let's say, or like a deal on a plasma TV and it's like, oh my gosh, that's only X amount of money. Instead of saying, hey, I want to go into a place and talk to the guy. And so to me, what's interesting about the city, too, is the businesses that have thrived here uh, during the difficult times are places that are based on people. Yeah. Right? They're not yeah. big box stores. They're the local hardware store. Those guys are fucking heroes. I love those places. You go in there. You need one thing. You can get it. You go to Home Depot and you got to buy a hundred of whatever. Right. And it's made in China. And God knows what has happened on the way through. But I think you never get past, like, the idea of person-to-person communication. To me, that's the ultimate business idea no matter what you're doing. But I feel like the advantage of our place, too, and I hope people take advantage of this, too, because we tend to be around a lot of times, is I, I just want people to talk to me. When I first wrote the wine list, I purposely made it so obscure that no one would know what they were ordering. And I put it <laughs> at the end of the bar, and I post it up there every single night for like a year and a half, and I would just talk people through it. Sure. And it was all European wine. It was always good wine. I wasn't putting bad wine on there. Right. But I didn't want there to be like a freebie, like, oh, that's Merlot. I know what that is, so I'm going to order that. I wanted to tell the story of the farmer. I wanted to tell the story of the soil. I wanted to tell the story of the area. Um, To me, there's nothing more satisfying than sitting at the bar and talking to someone about what we do. And the other part of our business model, which is um, something to me that makes sense with a coffee shop, is just the stories of Detroit are so rich and the history here is so rich. Whether you yeah. arrived from Spokane like Andrew, whether you came from the suburbs, whether you've been here your whole life, whether you're from Brazil or whatever, mm-hmm. there's such a rich history in Detroit and in the Midwest that I really feel like the coffee shop is just the ultimate place to have those conversations. Right. I saw that with my dad in the beginning. There was a guy that walked in one time. I started chatting with him. Turns out he's Ron Scott. He started the Black Panthers in Detroit. He and my dad... I think played uh, basketball together at Wayne University before it was even Wayne State. And these two guys talk, and it's like, I just want to have them up on stage, you know, chatting about the history of the city. Mm-hmm. Because I think really to drive the city forward, you have to have an understanding of what came before. Mm-hmm. You got to understand where you're at now. You got to have a goal for the future, but you also have to include the past. And I think that hasn't been done often enough in Detroit, but that's also like a structural advantage, uh, definitely to doing business in the city or to having just a good life in the city. And that's it. Please let us know what you thought about this episode on our Facebook page, The Detroit Bus Company, or on Twitter at Detroit Bus. Follow along and get more episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. Thanks to Anna Marie Seisling, who edited this episode, Matt Nahan, who co-hosted, and thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Thank you. I'm Andy DeRossi from Behind the Counter.